I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. So have you heard from him yet? Simon Cowell about your brilliant game show format, Crisp Word Association. No, it's funny. The the phone hasn't rung. Strange that, isn't it? No, I know. I thought you would be fighting off offers from the TV companies. No, no, I, I think not. I think it's just our own little homemade sort of game show. Your brain is so fertile at the moment. What with that and uh, make the, your own sandwiches. Make your own sandwiches. I know you're going through a real purple patch. I would say the sort of war on goop has maybe gone better than Crisp Words Association. <laughs> Did you like my hot cross buns? Yeah, Ed brought uh, hot cross buns today, which um, I was I've, which you burnt in the toaster. I did. Yeah, yeah. Not disastrously. I, I wouldn't have had you down as a hot cross bun guy. Why not? I don't know. I'm don't... so svelte. You you are quite svelte, but I, th- I largely attribute to that to you just being tall. Actually, talking of svelte, I went to um, Doncaster Rovers, our local football club in Doncaster. And Did you have the, a tryout with them? Uh, I think, no, they didn't want me. Uh, but they've got this fitness scheme for local people. And there were, I met one guy who's met, who's lost seven stone in a year. Did he do the thing with his trousers where he... No, he didn't do the thing with his trousers. Uh, you know the but, thing I mean where people who've lost yeah. a lot of weight, they wear their old trousers. To he wasn't wearing his old trousers, right. no. Shame. But, uh, he lost seven stone. I didn't see, even see the before and after pictures. Mm. But anyway, it's quite good because they like work in the local community. Um, you know, people who don't throw over fans get, come along and take part in this exercise. And he was saying what a difference it made to his diet. They were all saying, actually, it's great. It's a great, great scheme. And was there a, a local photographer there? Did you do some I did. keep keep what are they call keepy keepy uppies? uppies? I can't. I don't think I could do keepy uppies for the to save my life. Really. I think we'd all enjoy photos of you trying, though. Mm, thanks very much. 
Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna get into some exercise as soon as, um, soon as I've got my injuries sorted out. What What are your injuries? I I put my back out lifting my son up the other day, so I've been go. I've been to a physiotherapist twice now. Do you want me to go and give you a massage? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> it's particularly bad around my left shoulder, but oh, oh, that feels good. <laughs> oh, Ed, this is your gift in life. Big strong hands. <laughs> do I do I feel tense to you? You do feel quite tense. There we go. <laughs> that needs to doing you any good. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. <laughs> I do think there's a second chapter for you in physiotherapy. Is that better? Yeah, you've got the gift. Next week, I'm going to get some nice massage oils. We could light a candle. Okay, okay. Don't like steady on sunshine. Uh, um, oh, I feel so relaxed. I feel up for the challenge of today's podcast. Then, what are, what are we talking about? So there's been this whole thing about Facebook and Cambridge Analytica and what happens to people's data. And I think it throws up a big set of questions because really what happened at Cambridge Analytica, I think, is the tip of the iceberg when it comes to what happens to our data and the way the big tech companies, the Facebooks, the Googles and others use our data. Now, the question is, should we care about it? If we do care about it, what can be done about it? And we've got three people who know a hell of a lot about this um, to talk about what are the answers to, to this? And, uh, and and if we do care, you know, what are some of the solutions? It is one of the uh, few areas where I feel like a bad progressive because I find it quite difficult to be bothered. In a I, way, have, I, 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 think, I don't care what happens to my data. And I know that's not great. I know, but I have not been bo- that bothered to uh, until, you, until you work out, well, A, what's happening economically as a result of it. So some people are getting incredibly rich uh, as a result, but it's our data that essentially they're getting rich on. Uh, Secondly, when you think about the whole fake news thing and the way that that data is used to target people, uh, you know, target people with um, specific information. And then thirdly, where this might go in the future uh, and, and what might sort of happen. So I think we it's 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 really important. It's a really important discussion. And I am conscious that I'm saying this from a position of privilege. Maybe somebody in my and e- position and doesn't need to be that worried about their data. And but... probably ignorance. Yeah, no, yeah, definitely. No yeah. I mean, me too. But it's all, I think part of it is that the stuff is free. The Google search is the Facebook thing or seems free. And secondly, that it's all quite hard to understand. And we've got a brilliant comedian coming in to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. You might know him from his online series for Vice, which is called Hate Thy Neighbour. He's got a new show which he's taken to the Edinburgh Festival called Vape Lord. He's really, really funny. Jamali Maddox. All right, uh, on to our reasons to be cheerful. What's yours? Um, what, should, what should mine be? Well, we've got the Easter weekend. And, oh, I'm, I'm going to see the new Wes Anderson film. On Saturday night, I love dogs, which I'm quite excited about. A stop motion animation. Do you enjoy a stop motion animation? Like Wallace and Gromit. Of course, <laughs> I, mean, I didn't want to bring it up. Yeah. yeah. I thought I would instead. <laughs> oh, I, I really like this. I'd like to meet Wallace one day. That hasn't already happened. No. Yeah. Nick Park is listening. How about yourself? What's your reason to well, be cheerful? I'm, I think, as I said before, flying off to America and uh, with my children, and we're going to the Opening day, opening home game of the Boston Red Sox on Thursday, April the 5th. Have you ever been to one of these opening games before? I haven't been to opening day before. Opening day is quite big. It's called Extra Razzmatazz, um, my kid's first baseball game. You know why the Boston Red Sox are sort of famous, do you? No. So, I mean, they were best known because in 1918 they sold their star player, Babe Ruth, because the owner wanted to finance a musical No No Nanette. 
And uh, then they didn't win for 86 years. They didn't win the World Series for 86 years until 2004. And they came very close lots of times. So it was known as the curse of the Bambino, the curse of Babe Ruth, basically, having sold their star player. But then in 2004, they reversed the curse, uh, by in part by beating the Yankees, their arch rivals, having in a they, they have these best of seven series and and uh, in the sort of so-called semifinals, they uh, were three nothing down to the Yankees and came back to win four games to three. So it was a, quite a sort of big moment. So what was the bigger moment, that or the election in '97? Oh, clearly 2004. Reasons to be cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So we're joined now by Shoshana Zuboff, who is somebody who really foresaw a lot of the developments that we're seeing today around Facebook and so on. She wrote a book called The Age of the Smart Machine in 1988, and she's got a forthcoming book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Shoshana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. It's a great pleasure. Now, you coined the phrase surveillance capitalism. Can you just describe for our listeners sort of what it is, what you think motivates it, and why it's important? Well, surveillance capitalism... Obviously, the word surveillance conveys a certain quality of relationship. Surveillance conveys the quality of relationship that is the one-way mirror, a, a unilateral seeing of others who do not see the observer. So surveillance capitalism is is based on a discovery that occurred around um, 2001 and 2002 in Google. And that discovery was that the collateral signals that we leave when we engage in an online medium, in this particular case, Google search, we leave collateral signals. And for a long time, those collateral signals were considered to be waste, junk, and they were, sometimes they weren't stored or sometimes they were haphazardly stored in servers. There was a point at Google where they discovered that those collateral signals actually had tremendous predictive value when they were combined with Google's unique capabilities at uh, computer science, analysis, predictive analytics, and so on, all of those disciplines that have now grown into what we call machine intelligence. And at the time, Google realized that by combining their unique analytic expertise with this cache of waste data that they had, they could create predictions about user behavior that exceeded any other form of analysis that they had. And these predictions about user behavior could be used to sell to their advertisers so that their advertisers could very specifically target ads to individuals. What is the actual consumer loss here? So a lot of people would be quite happy that they get to search in Google and they don't need to, uh, uh, the point of searching, pay for it, or they get to look at their friends' photos on on Facebook. Um, 
what what would you say to to those people and that idea that they're just happy getting that for free? You know, we have been sold on the idea that the only way we can get the connection that Facebook offers or the only way we can get the information that Google offers, the only way we can get the goods from, um, you know, just hundreds and thousands of other Internet companies and and, uh, uh, websites and apps is to allow our behavior to be turned into data and used as predictions for others' commercial ends. Now, I regard that as an illegitimate proposition. But as 21st century individuals, it's become impossible for us to even participate in society without moving through the digital realm, without going through the internet and, and all of its ecosystems. Now, the idea that in order to access what we need for social participation, we have to give others all of this information about our behavior so that they can predict our behavior and use those predictions to sell to other people who want to influence and modify our behavior and and do things uh, uh, to, uh, to nudge us, to herd us, to tune us so that our actions uh, most precisely conform to their commercial outcomes. What we're doing is we're creating these massive feedback loops in our society, these institutionalized feedback loops, where because other entities, enterprises, and so on, are able to are able to see our behavior and are able to predict our behavior, they're also able to intervene in our behavior at key points in order to influence us and modify our behavior. And, of course, this is part of what the the current scandal about Cambridge Analytica and and political influence, political manipulation, political behavior, politically motivated behavioral modification. These are are the exact same capabilities that are simply being applied to a more more complex realm that actually has profound implications – not only for our individual agency and freedom and sovereignty, but also for the very, um, you know, the very possibility of our democratic order and, and its principles and values. What would you say to those who said this is just a more sophisticated version of the political and commercial advertising that we, you know, at the moment have on TV, and and you know, it, it may be a more targeted ver- form of that but it isn't qualitatively different. Anyone who says that, um, I would say, um, dear person, uh, come with me and read the materials and educate yourself, and you will see that uh, there is literally no comparison between these two phases of 
even narrowly speaking, you know, the, 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 the century-long project of commercial advertising. Uh, the key difference is that we're not talking about just a little bit of convenient targeted, targeted advertising. We're talking about global architecture of, uh, of, of digital mediation where vast flows of human behavior is converted into data and is and, and, and then is used as behavioral surplus for these processes of prediction. We're talking about an operation in which literally the greatest minds on Earth today, some of the, the greatest minds in computer science and data science and machine intelligence, these minds from all over the world are being employed by surveillance capitalist firms and bent to these disciplines of predicting and modifying human behavior. So that you see, you know, people with, a, a, you know, a many PhDs in very complex subjects and you read the scientific articles that they're publishing, you know, and these articles are geared to increasing the success of a targeted ad by, you know, 0.001%. Now, you, in one of the things you wrote, quoted Eric Schmidt, the uh, chairman and uh, of Google and Alphabet, as saying that one of the things about the Internet was that it was ungoverned space. How would you like to see it governed or how would you like to see the problem that you identify, the profound problem you identify, be, be dealt with? And I know that's a complicated question. Well, the first thing is that there is no single silver bullet, nor is this a process that, you know, is easily reduced to internet time. This is a process that takes uh, years and decades, not days and months. So, first of all, it's a process about collective action. And my view is, you know, one of the key things, uh, the, 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 the key things about where we begin here is that we begin as a group, as a public, as citizens and, and members of our society, getting a better understanding of exactly what this thing is. That it's illegitimate, that it's a quid, quo, a quid pro quo uh, that we don't have to agree to. Uh, that there are things happening that if we really, once we really understand them, we are likely to disagree with them. So we really need to get ourselves educated because public opinion, public education is a critical is a critical piece of the puzzle. Well, Shoshana, thank you so much for your passion and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. So we're joined now by Aral Bal Khan, a cyborg rights activist, uh, there's a title, and Matt Lawrence, who is a senior research fellow at the IPPR. Um, Aral, I wanted to ask, ask you first. I, I often feel like a bad progressive because I kind of don't care about my data. Um, why should I care? <laughs> 
Um, well, I think probably it's not that you don't care about your data. Um, it's probably that you don't entirely understand how it can be used against you or even maybe what it is because we keep talking about data as this generic term and we're not even qualifying it to the extent of are we talking about trees and rocks or are we talking about data about people um, and if we're talking about data about people uh, I have an example I like to give instead of a person think of uh, a, a small statue if I have enough data about that statue I can take a 3D printer and I can create a replica of that statue. So imagine what I can do if I have enough data about you. And I don't want to 3D print you. I kind of feel like I've lived most of my life with old media and I feel like the television are collecting viewers and different types of programs. They have different types of viewers and then the adverts on those shows are targeted at those viewers and the same goes for newspapers and radios uh, and radio channels. Isn't it just a more sophisticated version of that? It's not. It's actually completely different because when you're looking at an ad in a traditional newspaper, the ad is not also looking at you and watching what you're doing and recording that and using that to psychoanalyze you to create a profile of you, which it will then use to manipulate and exploit your behavior. Uh, traditional advertising and traditional branding don't do that. Um, what we're seeing with ad tech, which is different to advertising, ad tech is the business model of Google and Facebook. What we're seeing there is all, uh, more an evolution of what we used to call spam mail in the non-digital space. Um, and so this is about profiling and behaviorally analyzing people and then exploiting their behavior. So it's a completely different business model. We've also got Matt Lawrence here. Matt, do, why don't you also engage with Jeff's question, just as a sort of starter, which is... Um, why should we care? Well, I think the point is, even if you don't necessarily care about your data, the companies, the platform companies that are beginning to dominate sort of the new surveillance capitalism world we're entering into, they do. And their central purpose, they are diverse in forms. You have the Amazons, you have the Googles, you have the Facebooks. But their central purpose and business model is the re-sculpting of everyday life and our relationships into one giant and expanding space for the extraction of data, for the transformation of that data into behavioral insight and the generation of profit off that. And I think that then leads to an explosion in the potential of capitalist power. It leads to an explosion of the potential for inequality. And I think it really actually fundamentally begins to imperil some of the fundamental principles of democracy. So if these companies have these vast and expanding pools of data, and that data is being used deliberately to sort of manipulate, to change behaviours, as we saw with the Cambridge Analytic thing, but on an increasing scale, then actually fundamental notions of democracy like self-determination, like self-rule, like our ability to collectively and individually order our lives in ways that we want to, rather than being pressed down upon through this ubiquitous surveillance and analysis machine, then that begins to make it matter to you, even if you don't necessarily think that the data matters in and of itself. And I think it's that point about the collective scale of this is means that surveillance capitalism is a transformation in the nature of capitalism and capitalist power that is really sort of unrivaled in history. 
I completely agree with Matt there. Um, and also, your being able to say, I don't care about this, I don't care about my data, also tells me that, you know, you are probably in quite a privileged position. Yes. Because the people today who do care are, for example, people who happen to be gay and happen to be living in a country where maybe that's punishable um, by incarceration or worse. And they care that Facebook knows because of just maybe a handful of likes, Facebook knows their sexual orientation. So they care today. Um, and also remember that it's not just about you as well. Um, there's an aspect of second-hand smoke here. Where, for example, you might say, I'm going to use Google Mail, um, and that's just a decision that I've made for myself. I'm getting this service, and I'm willing to give up my privacy. But you haven't just made that decision for yourself, because Google doesn't just read the emails that you write. Google also reads all the emails that everyone else sends to you. So you've also made that decision for your friends and your family and your loved ones. So this is kind of like secondhand smoke. Smoke. This toxic business model, surveillance capitalism, doesn't just hurt you. It hurts the people around you as well and society in general. You're making me feel terrible about myself. You should feel terrible about yourself. <laughs> That's not what I'm trying to do. You should, you should feel guilty. <laughs> it's such a great user experience. But what kind of interface is it? What is the actual machine? The machine is a farming machine. It's not... So the bit that addicts you the bit that you know you use that gives you value that's the trap right um and and what the machine actually is built to do is to farm you so it's very shiny on top and it looks great and it's wonderful but it's built to uh essentially farm you like livestock Absolutely. And just to follow up on the um, sort of the privileging point, I think it sort of speaks a little bit to this delete Facebook campaign, because you can perhaps do that in sort of you know, the advanced West, perhaps. But actually, if you look at the global South, in a lot of the world, Facebook is the internet, it provides the infrastructure, the sort of the ways in which you access the internet. And so the point here is that Facebook's not just like, oh, you know, they've done something a little bit wrong, we need to sort of say, come on, just be a better form of sort of social social network. It's that the, the fundamental business model produces these bad outcomes. And then we need to have a systemic think around how we organize our digital infrastructure and how we govern and own our data, not just saying, oh, well, you know, Facebook, you know, you've been bad, let's maybe delete it, sort of show them what, you know, we actually need to think much more fundamentally about this digital world we're entering into. And I think actually one sort of other point just to raise uh, in terms of why it matters is actually sort of, it's a good quote by Lenin, which I always like to use in this, these circumstances. Definitely. Exactly. Good bit of Lenin. Exactly. But it sort of shows how <laughs> sort of, capitalism has transformed it with this ubiquitous surveillance uh, model. And he sort of said, you know, looking at industrial capitalism and sort of emerging sort of state-directed industries, he said, well, in the future, all of society will become a factory. Now, that obviously didn't necessarily happen in the 20th century. There were sort of separate domains of economic life, of social life, of political life. But what you're seeing with surveillance capitalism and this sort of insatiable drive to enclose all of life in a sort of machine to extract and analyse and monetize data, you're seeing that all of life is becoming a factory. So people listening to this app will be generating data, which will be generating profits. You know, you inescapably become a market actor. You inescapably, without consent, become a sort of cog in a broader sort of machine of capital accumulation in the way we currently organise the technical systems that are the digital surveillance mechanisms. But we can do it differently. That's the key and point. And before we get on to the solutions, I think we should tease out this political aspect of it because I can't help feeling that part of the harm here is 
the sort of corruption of the public square, the the, the sense that, you know, because of the level of micro-targeting that is now possible with Facebook, um, we're not having one political conversation in any sense you know there's there's sort of micro political conversations going on many of which we won't necessarily be aware of because it's such highly targeted advertising is is that is that right errol well uh, to begin with we don't have a public square anymore we don't have a public sphere because all of our public infrastructure our digital pu- public infrastructure is privatized it's private so facebook and google are not parks they are shopping malls um and this is the heart of the problem um you know we're we're looking at these shopping malls and saying oh you know why is freedom of speech under threat well because it's a shopping mall why is our privacy under threat because it's a shopping mall it's not a park and and if we want to change that, we really have to start building parks and not just shopping malls, um, because we are funding almost exclusively shopping malls today. Um, and that's not just private venture capital, of course, that's what it all goes into. But uh, even EU funding is going into funding startups with this toxic business model. So that's a real problem. Um, and yes, you know, the, the problem is that uh, we mistake parks for sorry we mistake shopping malls for parks um, and we don't have a public sphere anymore this is the heart of the issue i mean i think that's absolutely right so i think sort of any response has to insist on sort of a reassertion of sort of publicness and public things um, and i think the way to do that is to sort of mobilize around how do we concretely build up forms of democratic power how can we actually collectively come together whether in physical life but also sort of in digital life because actually social networks and much of the sort of the things that platforms provide are things we actually want to do. We, you know, we want to be able to search, we want to be able to connect, but doing it in a way that is public and democratic. And I think the way to think about that in terms of, sort of the publicness thing is to think that, well, technologies of both individual artifacts, but then sort of systems and how they interact and integrate themselves. So they are, they don't necessarily always, they're not preordained to produce certain outcomes. Their outcomes are generated by sort of the technical, the legal, the infrastructural norms and regulations that we embed and wrap around them. And therefore, if we have a politics that demands and can construct a different type of infrastructure, then we can generate much better outcomes. Because obviously, the tragedy of surveillance capitalism is that actually the the generative technologies underlying it, so the ability to trace and track and analyze, actually could produce tremendously powerful public goods, you know, better transport systems, help decarbonize the economy. It could, you know, ultimately ubiquitous data could mean that we could allocate goods more effectively than the price makers. And there are a whole host of sort of really quite emancipatory things we could do with it. But we have to sort of design and get the politics right to enact that design. So what does a form of this look like that's more of a, a park than a shopping mall? What what does that look like in real terms? Well, it starts with how you design the organization itself. So we can't talk about designing ethical technologies without talking about designing ethical organizations. Matt touched upon this. You know, he said, um, these products that we're talking about do not exist in a vacuum. I'm paraphrasing him right now. Um, but they exist within a greater, uh, socioeconomic, uh, system. So, uh, how do we incentivize organizations uh, where the motive, the, the success criteria, isn't an exit like it is in venture capital? Um, because if we're talking about building ethical, sustainable businesses to create these this, this new infrastructure, they can't be uh, funded by venture capital. So why aren't we talking about, for example, funding them from the commons for the common good? This is one way. 
you know, there are other ways within the current system of capitalism that we could maybe have fairer systems based on dividends, etc. But one thing we shy away from considering at all is that, uh, you know, these could be funded as public infrastructure, uh, not necessarily built by governments. We could be, uh, you know, incentivizing lots of organizations to compete to build these uh, these ethical alternatives, but in a system where uh, we incentivize sustainable long-term businesses that can maintain control over their social missions and don't have exits and don't get sold to Google and Facebook. These are the things we should be supporting, especially in Europe, in the EU. I mean, it breaks my heart to see that we have wholesale adopted the Silicon Valley model in Europe at, at the European Commission, for example, um, and uh, it's a complete loss of imagination. Uh, we really need to be doing things differently in Europe and in EU and supporting uh, these ethical alternatives from the commons. And Aral, just for the sake of listeners and for me, who are not massively well informed on this, what are the key elements of these other models that are sort of necessary? Is it people owning their own data? Is it the public sphere owning the data? What What's the key things that you would be looking for? Well, structurally, there are a couple of things. One, is it centralized or is it decentralized? Um, is there a corporation or an organization, for example, that's learning everything about everyone? Because we call them smart technologies, right? The question to ask is who's getting smarter about whom? If it's centralized, then there's a corporation or a government that's getting smarter about every one of us. That's not good. If it's decentralized, it means that the algorithms and the data are on our own devices. And these are still smart devices, but we're getting smarter about ourselves. Now, that's compatible with human rights and democracy. So decentralization is one aspect. Is it free and open or is it proprietary? So do I have to trust you when you say you're not doing something untoward? Or can I actually see the code that makes up these uh, services? And can I audit it? And if I don't like what you're doing, can I, uh, we call it forking, can I take it, make a copy of it, and build it myself, continue building it in a different direction? So decentralized, free and open, and finally interoperable. Are these walled gardens or can they talk to one another? So um, am I locked into a single service provider or can I actually use any service provider? So I'm going to agree with a lot of that. Um, I think the first point to say is we had a real sort of crossroads. And I think that was sort of the status quo, we would move on a path dependency where the rules and the norms would be defined by these sort of dominant platform monopolies. And I think that would see a radical increase in the problems we've already got, because we've got to recognise that their ambition is universal. And so really, for them, they're only just getting started. Um, so then what do we do? Well, I think, I mean, absolutely, I think reshaping sort of, and repurposing sort of business and enterprise, that is sort of something that is done for the common good, that is done for sort of purposeful enterprise rather than sort of profits sort of maximization and extraction and so sort of the short termism and the destructiveness we can see with some of these uh, platform companies is obviously sort of a key area of reform and that speaks to how we sort of govern companies but also how capital is owned how capital is distributed but then then think getting into this sort of technical issue i think we have to look at well how if we want a sort of different sort of world in which data is used and sort of uh, sort of put sort of social benefits i think we need to look at sort of four questions how is this the data generated i mean do we want certain objects certain devices certain sort of networks and relationships to, to generate data that can be tracked and traced so how is that then used because i think this is the great tragedy as i mentioned data should really be a great social good if it can be used in sort of a pro-social way rather than 
sort of in the current way. And I think it is worth stressing, like, you know, the great sort of bizarreness of this sort of whole situation is that Google and Facebook are two of the most sort of wealthiest companies ever created in human history. And their fundamental business model is sort of surveying us to sell data to the advertising industry. I mean, I mean, this is not really a great human mission that they're doing. So, so I think just saying, well, actually, can we just use this data better? And that will require re-sculpting what we actually want to, to see in society and sort of, I think, being tougher in terms of shaping sort of governance and sort of ownership rules. And then, of course, like, who does actually own the data, so sort of the proprietal structure? And I think there, I mean, I'm sort of very sceptical of this idea that we sort of individualised ownership because I think that would actually reinforce questions of digital inequality and sort of you know, mental health issues and a whole host of reasons why I think that is problematic. But I do think that sort of public data banks or sort of municipal sort of, you know, can TfL own all the data generated on its networks and then people can access it sort of in an anonymous fashion, but something that sort of is something, a, a data commons. Can we begin to construct those and can we use major public sector institutions as anchors? So can the BBC, for example, which has a huge digital footprint, can we begin to use that as a more effective way to sort of create a data commons uh, for the sort of public benefit? And then the final question is obviously, you know, these kind of companies generate an enormous amount of sort of revenue from selling sort of insight generated from our collective data and our engagement uh, with these with these um, sort of infrastructures and these platforms. But obviously, where is the common claim to that? There's sort of wealth created by our common data. And so I think there is a question of, well, actually, if we re-sculpt, um, we, you know, we don't necessarily want a world in which sort of the digital giants of the future are simply just you know, mining data for behavioral insights for profit. But if we are generating value in the future from data, who has the claim on it? And I think surely it should be a common claim, given it's commonly generated. Let me ask you, following on from that, uh, Aral, about what you're doing in Ghent in Belgium, because presumably that is in a microcosm trying to emulate some of the solutions that you and Matt have been talking about. So, you know, this is a great example of just what I was saying earlier, where the city of Ghent is supporting our tiny two-person and one husky not-for-profit, uh, now based in Ireland, Um with building a system, a personal, a federated personal website system, really, um, for the common good, and they're supporting it from the commons with commons and, money. And just so, Ghent. just again for the sort of uninitiated, just explain briefly the difference between the Ghent system and everything else is what that the that the data is owned by the citizens as a whole or by citizens individually. Uh, well, to understand, I mean, a good rule of thumb there is if we're talking about data about rocks, then that should be owned by the commons. And Matt was talking about that at length earlier. If we're talking about data about people, that should be owned by the individuals themselves. So what we're lacking today, what we've lost to a great extent in the digital networked era is personhood, control over our personhood. And this is what this project aims to uh, address by giving everyone their own place on the internet, um, a website, you would call it a website, right, at your own domain, but with a system that can talk to everybody else's websites, so a federated system where each website can talk to each other, and you don't need anyone in the middle, because Facebook's business model is really to be the man in the middle that knows everything. You know, on their website, they say, we connect you to the world, to each other. No, they connect you to Facebook. So we don't need that. Instead, if every one of us had our own space, 
on the web and on the internet, then the interconnections between those individually sovereign nodes become public space. Public space in the digital sphere isn't a place you go to. It is the interconnections between individually sovereign nodes. So that's what we're building. So, so what I can't quite grasp is the shiny bit of any app or Facebook or Gmail or whatever is is what gets you hooked. It's the it's the skeleton on which you're putting your photos or you're searching within your uh, mail or, or whatever use the app has exactly Um, that's the bit that and they're making their money off the data but if you take away the making the money off the data who's who's paying for the nice shiny infrastructure and 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 skeleton well um i i think there's actually two questions there that i would love to explore with you but um just about who's paying for it in terms of the city of ghent for its citizens the city of ghent is going to be paying for it at least for the basic amount so uh, let's say a certain amount of storage space, their domain names, the city of Ghent is going to pay from that from the commons. Um, and this is a big part of the project, what's unique about it. Um, but let's say you want, you know, a huge amount of extra space for your photos. Well, the city of Ghent is not hosting these sites. And that's a good thing. We're going to be going to independent providers. Um, and you can switch from one to the other because it's interoperable. And if you want to have extras on top of that, then you can pay them for the extras. So um, we can actually start building a, uh, an, uh, we can have an ethical core and then build an ethical economy on top of that, as opposed to the unethical core that we have today. So that's not my primary focus in this. um, But that is uh, also not incompatible with what we're doing. But the other thing you touched on, which is crucial, is these systems that we're building, these alternatives, these ethical alternatives will live or die based on how convenient they are, how well they meet the needs of people. Um, So nobody wakes up in the morning and says, Gee, I wish I had a, you know, federated personal website I could use. No <laughs> one has ever done, said that, <laughs> no, right? You're right. You, know, no. you wake up and you're you, right. yeah, you know, you, you wake up and you say, I want to share my photo with my friend. Maybe I want to show you, you know, what I've been up to. I want to talk to you. And we need to be able to create these experiences in a beautiful way, in a delightful way. And it happens to be ethical. Um, and that's very important. That's a lesson that. Sometimes the free and open source world has been very slow to grasp. So I mean, I think that the, the Ghent example is really interesting, and sort of you know, there's a whole host of them. So you can also look at somewhere like Barcelona, which sort of tried to sort of commons its collective data and reworks sort of public procurement so that data becomes an asset that sort of citizens can can use. Um, but I, mean, I think also the other thing I'd say is that that speaks to there's two strategies we can sort of, we can take with it. We can either sort of try and scale, and I don't think they're sort of opposing. I think we should really try and do both. But we can either try and scale sort of ethical alternatives from the ground up, and I think that will require a much more interventionist and frankly imaginative type of politics and type of, sort of economic policy making. But at the same time, well, what do we do? I mean, Facebook and Google are not going away. Uh, so w- what do we do with them? Do we sort of simply try and regulate out the bads? Do we try and sort of fundamentally transform their character? Um, and I think sort of that sort of political sort of balance and strategy of well, how, what do we actually do with these giants, which are the sort of commanding heights of the contemporary economy? And crucially, not the just interesting to- thing is sorry to interrupt, but the interesting thing is at the moment, post Cambridge Analytica, I think there is a growing tide of anxiety. It's just it needs to find a resting place. Yeah, ex- exactly. And I, th- I mean, I think 
Cambridge Analytica is a perfect example of sort of it could be one of those trigger moments. And I think the the thing here is that actually they have a well developed business model with like high amounts of capital and an awful lot of data and ability to analyze it. Whereas we're very much at the starting point of trying to sort of puzzle out alternatives, and obviously there's grassroots alternatives like um, in Ghent. But I think it's really what Cambridge Analytica shows is the real need to develop the technical and infrastructural ideas and alternatives that can actually sort of begin to begin a different digital life world. Because I think the risk is obviously we're talking about sort of Cambridge Analytica now, but you know what these companies are trying to do is not be companies that analyse behavioural data to sell to advertisers in 10, 15, 20 years. Sort of the platform wars, as Nick uh, Schoenacek describes it, will be about dominating AI and forms of AI trained on sort of data, digital data, which will eclipse, in many cases, the cognitive and physical capacities of humans. And that is the point at which, you know, they become... Even Jeff uh, looks uh, they, Exactly. And then they become... So really, we need to sort of act quickly. I just wanted to say, I wonder if this is a good time to focus all this energy on what I see as uh, the biggest stumbling block in our ability to regulate these corporations, which is institutional corruption, the influence of corporate finance in public policymaking. Uh, Specifically, these very same corporations that we're trying to regulate are influencing the regulators, are influencing the policymakers through lobbying, through revolving doors, even through public-private partnerships and multi-stakeholderism. So, um, you know, uh, on the one hand, uh, we, we agree, I believe, that we need to regulate them. But on the other hand, we're not being effective in regulating them because they're spending millions of euros lobbying the European Commission. They're spending millions lobbying in the US, etc. Um, so uh, as I see it, unless we can remove the influence of this corporate finance um, in our regulatory processes and in our public policymaking, um, we're going to have a very hard time regulating them. I completely agree. We need to do those two things together. We must regulate them and we must replace them with ethical alternatives. But in order to regulate them, we have to first and maybe at the same time combat institutional corruption. I mean, I think that's going to be right. I think absolutely central to any response has to be sort of beware Californians bearing gifts. I think there's a real tendency to be like, oh, look at this. Fire. You know. <laughs> never never accept candy from Silicon Valley is what I say. Well, exactly. And I mean, we sort of go, oh, look at this shiny new Facebook sort of HQ in London. <laughs> and we sort of get slightly distracted about that. We, you know, we don't put nearly as much attention trying to sort of, you know, invest in the everyday economy, you know, sort of good jobs and social care, sort of gendered work, things like that. And we sort of get distracted by it. And that's partly lobbying. It's partly sort of a culture of sort of deification of California, really. That's sort of you know, as a sort of geopolitical idea, not really sort of a geographic location. And so I think just being sceptical about some of the claims of these companies and sort of, you know, demanding that they actually prove their social worth rather than just sort of saying, hey, look at our, you know, our shiny new this, that or the other. I just want to ask about an EU thing. General data protection regulations, GDPR, coming into force in May. Just give us a brief take on what these mean and whether they're of any use, Errol. Um, well, in a nutshell, GDPR is a very good first step. Basically, what GDPR is going to do is make it harder to retain data indefinitely, uh, make it so that you have to have explicit permission uh, for data that you gather. Those are really, really important. Um, and there are other provisions in there as well. But it's a first step. It's not the it's not the end. We haven't reached the end. This is a good first step. 
Uh, it has things that are lacking. Uh, we don't have algorithmic transparency, for example. So we still won't know what their algorithms are actually doing. Um, and beyond that, remember, like I was talking about institutional corruption earlier. Uh, so these companies are lobbying as we speak, uh, especially in the context of the e-privacy directive that's being debated at the moment to try and water down because those are going to come into effect together and affect each other to really try and water down some of the provisions in GDPR like explicit consent, for example. Um, so this is an ongoing battle. And this is why I think it's very, very important that we don't become complacent in any way. The GDPR puts us light years ahead of the United States, for example, in terms of the protections that people in Europe will have. But we are still at the very beginning in terms of being able to protect the rights of European citizens um, as they should be protected within the digital and, and networked era. So last question to both of you. Um, we've got this thing called the Jeffocracy, uh, but don't be put off by it. It's not like sort of the rule of Mark Zuckerberg or anything. Uh, it's Jeff as a sort of benign uh, ruler, but it will be open source and decentralized and all of the, all of the right things. <laughs> Although if, if Google want to buy it, don't, know, don't, everyone don't, has don't a price. Spoil it. Don't, don't, don't spoil it. Now, get, let me ask both of you, uh, Matt, why don't you go first? If you were the Minister for Technology, sort of jointly with Aral in the Jeffocracy, what, you, it's your first 100 days, Jeff calls you in, um, what are you going to do? Um, well, yeah, I mean, uh, Jeffocracy is better than sort of the society of the like, which is sort of the world we live in today. Yeah. I think it would be something along the lines of sort of establishment of sectoral or city-based or national even sort of public data banks. So data generated on systems are anonymized and sort of in meta scale so that they can be analyzed, they can generate really useful social insights, but they aren't sort of they don't sort of clog up around these dominant platforms. And that way sort of the value of sort of our data can yield sort of social benefits that are much more broadly and democratically shared. Great. Errol? Well, um, with all due respect to Jeff, I think I would, first of all, resign. And then, uh, spend... <laughs> I, I would. Um, and, and I would spend my time uh, trying to work uh, for a future that moves beyond the Jeffocracy, because Jeff might be a benevolent king, but uh, the fact that we have kings today and we have essentially a feudal system, you know, our new feudal lords are the CEOs of these monopolies, is the problem. And um, I think we need to create a future where our only agency isn't to say to some king, please, sir, be kind, because, you know, the king today might be, but we can't predict that for the king tomorrow. So, you know, surveillance capitalism um, is not just about surveillance, it's also about capitalism. And the, uh, the inequalities that it's created, uh, especially in wealth and power, um, and how those are being affected by surveillance, how they're being multiplied in a feedback loop. So I would resign. And I would work towards a future that's a democracy, that's a democracy, not a jeffocracy, um, so that we could have a future where we have individual sovereignty and a healthy common. But one of you is heading for the gulag and the other one isn't. <laughs> Matt is more diplomatic, maybe. I don't know. That's the kind of ruler Jeff's going to turn out to be. Uh, Aral and Matt, thank you so much for joining us. <laughs> Pleasure. Thank you so much for having us. My head's exploding. It is a really complicated one to wrap your head around, isn't it? And and I, I do accept that point that the reason I'm not bothered about it is 
because I talk from a position of privilege. I think it's obviously something that can affect you more if your circumstances are, are, are quite different to mine. But even through talking uh, great length, as we just did, I can see that the, the general data protection regulations from the EU are a reason to be cheerful. But what I don't see this week is, is anything really that looks like a clear solution. We need to be talking about this because, look, government and people, I think, have been slightly asleep on this. The shininess of the apps and the um, offering and the service has blinded us to what's actually going on. And I do think that the accumulation of all this information in private hands is something which is somewhat problematic now as Cambridge Analytica, the Russian ads, you know, in the presidential election, fake news, all of that shows. But it could get worse, I think. And therefore, the question is, what should be done? You clearly need protections around data, and obviously there's GDPR as a start. I think these companies should stop being able to acquire all of this extra power. So just to give you sort of an example, Facebook owns Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus, uh, and Masquerade, which I think is some competitor with Snapchat. Why does it need to buy up all these other things? And why should it be allowed to have that kind of huge kind of a concentration of power. I mean, I think all concentrations of power of that kind are problematic. But that's become the Silicon Valley business model. I, let's let's start know, a company and we're not figuring out how to make this com- company profitable. We're figuring out how do we get bought by Facebook or Google. Yeah, exactly. So so secondly, we've got to look at how we start to limit the power of these companies. And then thirdly, longer term, I think we've got to think about, you know, who should have ownership of this data? Where does it lie? Um, and how do we sort of protect the public good? Because the public good, we don't want to stop people having kind of, you know, being able to do searches that are efficient. Um, and we don't want to stop people communicating with each other. And in fact, you know, there's lots of great things about the internet, but we've got to make sure we protect the public good of the internet and the, and the positive aspects of it from the more dangerous accumulations of private power. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. If you've got thoughts about data or other things you've heard on the podcast, please do email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com or you can find us on Twitter and Instagram at cheerfulpodcast or on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash reasons to be cheerful podcast. And we've had some great emails this week. One here from Stephen Wynn Davis. Hello, Jeff and Ed. I wanted to thank you both for mentioning the Rye and Battle Observer article in your most recent podcast, Housing First, Tackling Britain's Homelessness Crisis, in which Amber Rudd called three homeless deaths in Hastings between Christmas and New Year a tragedy. I'm the reporter behind the article. I've been researching the topic for the past few months and looking at just how deep the crisis has become. Via figures provided to me by the Office for National Statistics, I found there was a record high number of people sleeping rough in Hastings during the autumn of 2017. As a result of our investigation, myself and my colleagues at the Hastings Observer launched a campaign called Hope for the Homeless in February. Our mission is to halt the rise of rough sleeping in the town. And to do this, we're working with a number of different charities and organisations in the town that work with and support the homeless community. However, like any campaign, we need support. So we'd be really thankful if you could encourage people to join us. The website is here and it'll be on our Facebook page or you can visit the Hastings Observer Facebook page. So, Stephen, thank you for um, emailing in. He says, I'm a big fan of the podcast and thank you for drawing attention to this important issue. This comes from Artan who says, it's not often I find cheer on the tube. However, this morning whilst listening to your podcast, I looked up to see Ed standing in the carriage very generously making way for someone else to take an empty oh, seat. Oh, that sounds like me. <laughs> What's your criteria? What you're looking for? Is it the the elderly, the pregnant? Um, yeah, elderly, pregnant, or looking like they want a seat. If you see me on the tube, would you? I would think you offer I have. Seat? I think I have the sort of baseline of sort of seat giving up uh, sort of tendency, but with an extra dollop of politician <laughs> paranoia. <laughs> That I'm going to be sort of, you know, sitting there enjoying my seat while some poor person who sort of broke their leg or yeah. or something might be wanting a seat. Thinking how much a cheerful coincidence this was, says Artan, who of course was listening to the podcast. I took out my earphones to go tell him until I noticed his son was with him I may, and I may look a bit weird. But he would be very welcome to come up to me. And that, that goes for anybody who sees Ed on any form of public transport. Indeed, yeah. Okay. And this one comes from Giles, who says, David and Jeff. Now, we're not sure which David he's mistaking you this for This isn't here. your fourth podcast that you're doing privately with my brother, <laughs> is it? Well, I didn't know if you meant your brother or if you met David Cameron. Oh, maybe that's true, yeah. actually. Um he says, I'm a newish listener of your pod, which I came to through the Talking Politics podcast and the Limehouse podcast. I live in Melbourne and we used to have a make your own sandwich chain I think here. this trend is not my friend. Is Unfortunately, it? it's no longer around. I think, I think we've now established, one, there have been MYO sandwich <laughs> shops. Two, they haven't done very well. Three, there are a few. There are very few left. At least, thanks, thanks, Charles, for letting us know you're there and letting us know that it has been attempted down under. I, I haven't lost faith. Email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cheerful Podcast, or search for our Facebook page, Reasons to Be Cheerful Podcast. And here to pitch ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, we're joined by comedian Jamali Maddox. Hello. Hey, I'm all right. What's Hello. up? 
Nice to meet you. Will you tell us about Hate Thy Neighbour? This has been a big success for you. Yeah, would you know about it? Well, to, you know, for people who haven't seen oh, it. Oh, what the show what, is What is that? it? Yeah. Uh, yeah appeal to Jeff because he probably does hate his neighbour. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the ones on either side. It's just right. a bit further out than yeah, that. Right. It, 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 it is with the weird politics because you've got to get along with the next door neighbours unless mm. it's something massive. But the other ones you can hold grudges against. Exactly, yeah. You want to be close enough to your neighbours that if you go away and forget to cancel the milk, they'll happily go and yeah. pick it up for you and check that you haven't been burgled. But I don't, yeah. I don't think you want to be getting into an intimate relationship with no. them. But if it goes wrong... Yeah. Then you know you're a closed off dude. I, I am a closed off dude. <laughs> You've worked that out already. I, I bet they're lovely people, but it's you. No, they are lovely. You, people. Yeah, yeah, I'm the problem. You just want to sit in your attic with Ed Miliband. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should just like issue an invitation to them. Easter Monday, if you're listening to the podcast and you're one of Jeff's neighbours. Come down. I bought him some hot cross buns. There might there be a few go. left. Ring the bell and come around. You're always welcome. You're always welcome anytime. Jeff's got open house policy. Yeah, yeah. open house. Yeah. But I, do, I do wonder if any of the neighbours have seen you coming in and out of my house and they think, what the hell is going on? It, does, it would look weird. Yeah. If it was me, I would, I would, I would, I would be, I'd be writing notes. Yeah. Just, just checking. You know what I'm saying? Just like, oh, what's, what's that miniband? <laughs> just coming around his house every week. I looked out the window after he left last week and he was doing he's posing for selfies with the traffic wardens <laughs> was in order to try and avoid getting a parking ticket yeah 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 sorry back, back to hate thy neighbor yeah then. sorry um basically it's a show it was on vice and i went around the world and i spoke to fascists and sort of hate groups like uh neo-nazi groups in america i spoke to fascist groups in uh ukraine uh israel uh sweden and i'd done stand up in between it and in the second episode, I went across America and I just spoke to people with controversial ideas, not necessarily hate groups, but people who are like sort of really staunch anti-abortionists. Uh, we went to one where it was like a brat camp where uh, people send their kids to a uh, uh, prison for 72 hours uh, for discipline. Oh my God. I was just interested in why. Yeah. Like, why do you think? Because the thing is like, even though I don't excuse their beliefs, because their beliefs are disgusting sure. a lot of times, especially the fascists and all that sure. stuff. But you forget that they're people that have had an experience. Yeah. And you think, okay, but what's made you this? Because that's so extreme. With with politics so sort of um, polarized, polarized yeah. is that everyone talks about things in the most extreme nature. So I want to actually, I want to be the real fascist. Because everyone says that. I mean, you see on Twitter a lot, everyone's like, you're a Nazi. I was like, I, they're not Nazis. They, they, they're they're, they're cunts, but they're not they're Nazis. Nazis. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. There's a big, you know, there's a very big difference, you know, and that's a real... So I want to speak to those people. But do you feel that having spoken to those people, it might have made them no, rethink? No, 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 no. Right. No. I mean, because I, 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 I'm not deluded with entertainment. Like, I, I think that the people who watch it and like it probably aren't racist. Yeah. <laughs> and the people who don't like it, you know, like those, those people I spoke to would still be racist. I don't think there's anything wrong with having some type of dialogue. But then there needs to be a point where you go, look, you know, we can't debate ridiculousness. Even having a conversation about did the Jews die in the Holocaust is ridiculous. Yeah. And we, are we going to have this conversation? Do you know what I'm saying? No, yeah, I do. Just, yeah, it, yeah. It, it sort of legitimizes. Yeah, you know, like I'm not doing conversation. this. You know what yeah. I'm saying? And So yeah, I'm done with that. But yeah, I've done that for a long time. <laughs> so Jamali, you, you brought um, some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. What's your first one? All right. So these are these these are things that we could implement to make a better world. Yes. I'm guessing, yeah? yeah? All right. This is, this is, this is a nice one. Because I've got some ones that I think just came from anger. <laughs> and I was sitting there I was just sitting there like this is what I want to see in the world uh, I think 
that uh, the workday shouldn't be nine to five; it should be eleven to four. So Ooh, a much that's shorter... good. I think shorter working is quite a good idea. Didn't they trial this in a few Sweden, in, in few companies in Sweden? Yeah, but and... they, did, they, you know, the Swedes didn't do it right. Listen, the British Republic. We're... I don't think it was proved <laughs> to be bad in Sweden. Uh, no, I, I don't know that it was proved to be quite as effective as they thought it was going to oh, be. You're such a policy one. I... Such a policy <laughs> nerd, you. Yeah, you're going no. deep in these policies. No, I'm all I'm all for working less. You're all for getting starting work at eleven o'clock. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You think about it. You go to work. I mean, I say I go. To, I, I haven't been to work for a long time but when I did go to work for that week right yeah. I've only had two jobs when I did go to work for that week you, nine o'clock you, you, you're messing around for a bit you know is you're messing yeah. around you know exactly going yeah. straight to work you're not doing yeah. labor party business you're messing yeah. around for a little bit checking emails yeah, yeah. you know get there 11 o'clock and then you start the day you check out well, they emails. did say this about swedish thing that people were more worked more intensively and also if i can say about jeff jeff and i went on a mini break to vienna uh, a few weeks back and uh nice. professional mini break and the night before <laughs> jeff said what breakfast what time should we meet and i said well what time do you want he's like nine perhaps uh, and then i got a text which i kind of predicted at about eight thirty, saying how would you feel about nine fifteen? so yeah. you know jeff's not a morning but i'm not a morning person what time jeff, did you wake up about uh seven thirty. Well, that's a morning person yeah that is a morning that's person. mad really yeah i thought you were the man of leisure i thought you'd be yeah, waking up well, like i thought you'd be waking up at ten thirty. what time do you wake up about, about 11 oh, really? 12 what time do you go to bed about uh two Okay. Because I think I get back from a gig at like 12. Mm. Yeah, so. I do too as well, actually. <laughs> there you go. But we had Dan, Dan Pink on the show who yes. talked about natural rhythms. Yes, yeah, so one shouldn't be judgmental about this. No. You're, you've obviously got natural rhythms, which is you go to bed later. Yeah. What time do you go to bed? Midnight. Midnight, damn. Yeah. Not sure I even believe that because sometimes <laughs> he's, he's sending emails at the podcast at quarter two in the well, morning. Well, exactly. Stuff, okay, maybe so. Yeah, that's you're true. up late. We know, <laughs> yeah, we know, yeah. we know your lifestyle. Yeah, 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 exactly. Partying. <laughs> right, 11 to 4. I'm Definitely. very, I'm very yep. into that. Yeah. So I think I should mind going to politics, mate. <laughs> you should. I'll vote for you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'll <laughs> you vote for you. Oh, you wouldn't like the hours. No. Um, yeah. No, I wouldn't. No, that often the hours would be wrong. What else do you have? I've got banning kids from pubs. But what age are you allowed in pubs? I've seen people bring their babies to I pubs. I think if a pub does food, oh, then you can take your yeah, kids Yeah, but no there. loopholes. So you would like to see a return to the days where um, divorced dads would go yeah. to the pub on a weekend and, and leave, think, leave uh, the kids sitting outside with a glass of lemonade. Yep, and I think we should try and bring back smoking in the pubs to try and discourage <laughs> people bringing see, their babies. So, so, so David far. Cameron, of course, famously left his child in the pub. Yeah. Yes. How are the kids ruining the pub? They're noisy. Really? Just being kids. Are people are noisy in pubs. Yeah, I know, but I can't swear now in the pub because someone someone brought their baby Oliver to the pub. Oh, so so I, I agree with that. Or Niles, yeah. or the baby Niles is in the pub. So yeah, I can't no, I mean Niles has to be a broad-minded baby if yeah, he's in the pub. Yeah, I think exactly. in the first place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure and, he's got, be... and he's got a bit of banter. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> he's got a bit of convo. I don't yeah, want to. Yeah. I don't want to hear about your dumb but shows. I don't think we want to be banning Niles. No, from the we pub, won't ban him, mate. You, you think yeah, so? We should ban him. Don't you think pubs have been tremendously improved though since when? You were younger. I mean, it's nice knowing going into a pub, I'm not going to get glassed, but it, yeah. it kind of uh, it, it ruins you think the surprise ruined? a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a bit of danger when you used to go to the pub, no? So so where where do we stand on this, banning kids in pubs? Then? I'm not so sure. Um, right. And did you have one more idea? Yes. Uh, I think TV should come with every channel. So so with a TV license, yep. that money should be used so just, just for BBC. I think we should be able to, so on the TV only comes with the basic channels. I think it should come with every channel. 
So you think our TV license should make sure you get Challenge yes. TV with the yes. old repeats yes. of Bullseye yes. Yes. and the E exclamation yeah, mark channel? Yeah, I don't think you just channel. get BBC. I think, get I think it should be Hang on, don't channel. you get – doesn't digital TV get you – it gets you more channels, but not every channel. I can't. Well, like, I can't. I can't, I can't watch Cheaters. <laughs> what's that? You haven't seen Cheaters? No. Yo, you go watch what Cheaters, bro. What's that? Cheaters is an old two thousand show where basically you go and say, "Listen, I think my wife or my partner's cheating on me," and then they send investigators to go find oh out. Oh my god! And then they... <laughs> what channel is it on? It's on reality. So you don't get see because you didn't know. You only got you the basic channels. Reality. You don't get reality. So you had the basic channels and you're missing out. Yeah, that's like my because uh, I mean because like, especially when you when you speak to Nazis for two years, you kind of have to yeah, unwind true. with something a little bit more silly. You need cheaters. Yeah, you need cheaters. But what about the impact on the BBC if they were giving it to the channel that shows cheaters? I'm not sure which I mean, one BBC it is. BBC have to sad enough. So then then it'd be less money for David Attenborough. I mean, Attenborough's had enough money. <laughs> I love Amber, but he's had enough now. Come on, Amber. We get it. We get it. You know, we've had enough. We've seen enough. We've animals. seen enough whales. Like you're not telling me nothing new about whales, that Jeff and I won this award recently, and uh, I had a and David Attenborough won an award, and I had a selfie with David Attenborough. But Jeff's really offended, which is basically a the common running theme. But I didn't introduce him to David Attenborough. You didn't introduce. You know him before. David Attenborough, yeah. Jeff. Yeah, yeah, David no, Attenborough, no, no, yeah. You know him before? Yeah. You know people in high places, don't you? Oh. You're a real player. He, he when was, was climate at the change next secretary. table. He went over to talk to David Attenborough at the next table, two hours. Oh. Now, presumably, the conversation went, David Attenborough says in his marvellous voice, oh, so you're here for the podcast. That would have been a perfect yeah. opportunity for Ed to say, yeah, I'm here with my co-host. Jeff, come and say hello to David Attenborough. I know, I do feel would, guilty. Who wouldn't want to meet David Attenborough? I do yeah. feel guilty. I do feel guilty about it, actually. Is it trying to make this only a work relationship and you don't want to bring him into your personal life? <laughs> <laughs> the crazy parties with David Attenborough and stuff. I, I think it was just, <laughs> I was just starstruck. Yeah, that's what he says. He goes to bed at 12. Yeah, him and Attenborough up, mate. <laughs> Spending that BBC money. You know how they're getting done. I've heard about the Miller Band. That's what they call him, the Miller Band. Uh, <laughs> no, I was, uh, I, I, I think they call him a Miller Band. A Miller Band. Yeah. 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 Um, Jamali, your Edinburgh show, does it have a name yet? Yeah, it's called Vape Lord. Yeah. That's a good title. It's a bit of vape talk. You, you wouldn't understand. I, yeah. I don't understand. Yeah, no, vape. It's gone over my head. Yeah. So you're going to be in Edinburgh and then yeah. on, on tour. We'll see you yeah, in Edinburgh. Tour. Yeah, come down. Lovely to see you. Thank you very much for having Cheers. Me. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We're going to be apart for 15 days. Is, it, is that the longest we've ever been apart I so far really since we started is. the podcast? I mean, I'll have uh, your mother-in-law hopefully to, to sort of fill, fill some of the gap in Chicago. She, she certainly fills a gap. Yeah. Yeah. You'll, She's going to be doing her. hopefully a little bit of babysitting. Is that right? Yes. You've employed her for childminding. Yeah, I don't know about employed. <laughs> <laughs> She volunteered. Well, I'm sure your boys. While will. I'm with David Axelrod doing an event in Chicago, she's going to be doing some babysitting. Hopefully, um, they'll have a great time, your lads, with Lynn yeah. Barron going around Chicago, seeing the fat I'll, shallots. I'll send you. A, I'll send you a postcard. Well, they don't do. They, people don't do postcards anymore, do they? No, you could. You could. Um, you could send me a selfie. Yeah. Should we thank our guests? Uh, we should. Yes. Uh, they're brilliant guests this week: Shoshana Zuboff, Errol Balkan, and Matt Lawrence, and comedian Jamali Maddox. Emma Caution produced our podcast with research and backup from Alex Feisbrice and Lindsay Todd. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dents. Ed Seed composed the music. And Emily Power made our artwork. Brilliantly done. She did a good job of the artwork, didn't she? Well, no, I meant your credit. You just, they just roll off the tongue. Thank you very much. So when you're back from your jollies, uh, we will be in, we'll be in Bristol. Correct. We've got a live show in Bristol on Friday the 13th. We'd love you to come along. Go to bit.ly stroke cheerful Bristol to get your tickets. 
or um, you can find a link in the notes to this week's programme. He's been eased the bunny. He's got hot cross buns. And these have been reasons to be cheerful. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big.